Thank you, Josh. It's already a good day whenever Josh leads worship. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open them to John chapter 2. We'll be looking at that text in just a moment. Uh, we didn't do my wife good service. My wife, Kay, we've actually been married 32 years. Uh, that was a slightly dated bio. It's all, all on me. And uh, she is the mother of three sons, and, and it was probably harder on her watching that game than anybody last night. Uh, when the highlight, Josh told me the, uh, the first series, Cole was number 85. Cole was number 85. The high, when the highlight of the game is first series, the, the quarterback under pressure throws it at his feet, and that's the closest he came to a reception. You know it's going to be a bad night. So, but uh, we're glad to start the new coaching era off well, and that's our gift to you from Murray State. <laughs> John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. They have no more wine. Dear woman, Jesus replied, Why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he pulled the bridegroom aside and said to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. His disciples put their faith in him. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's bow together and pray. God, we're thankful for your word. And God, I just prayed today that this text will come alive to us, that your Holy Spirit would move among us, that you'd speak a word through me, and that you would open all of us up to hear a word from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I had the distinct pleasure to go with a group of other leaders from a former institution. We went up to Washington, D.C. on a leadership development trip. And we saw a lot of things while we were up there. One of the unexpected highlights was a trip to the museum. I don't know if anybody's ever been to the museum in Washington, D.C. It's the News Museum. And it's really a fascinating uh, museum, if you will, and a lot of different kinds of displays and what, what's, you know, they've got a, a Berlin Wall and all sorts of different things. But the, the thing that stood out to me was the display about the Pulitzer Prize winning photos from the last however long they've been given that award, 75 years or so. And so I'm looking at, at all these iconic photographs that you've grown up seeing, and it drove home the, the cliche that we all know, a picture is worth, what, a thousand words. It really is. A picture is worth a thousand words. I love what George Ricker says about the the miracle stories in the Gospels. He says the miracle stories are pictures inserted in the narrative to bring the Gospel to life. 
pictures inserted in the narrative. And that is certainly the case in John's Gospel. Love John's Gospel because all really of the narrative of the four Gospels, they are written with a purpose. John is explicit. He tells us in John 20, 30 and 31, right? Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you might believe and that believing you might have life through his name. So John's telling us, listen, I collected these stories. I curated these stories in a particular way with an end result in mind. And the end result is that it would produce faith in people. And so when you understand that and you know that's what's going on with all of the gospel writers, it kind of changes your perspective a little bit. And you don't get so caught up in why, is, why does this gospel have this story here and this one have it here? Is there some kind of a misunderstanding? Not at all. They're curating the stories with a particular purpose in mind. And in John's case, it's to produce faith. So here's how it works in John's gospel. And this is why I particularly love pay attention to the stories, pay attention to the dialogue, because John's doing something. He's told us that. John 1, 1 to 4, we know it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. And then he tells us in 1.18, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, those are such familiar words to us that we blow right by them and don't think about it, but that's the, that's the incarnation claim. <laughs> I mean, if you heard that for the first time, you would be just, it would just blow your mind that here's, here is John claiming that God became a man. And, and it sounds so audacious that you'd just be, you know, you'd be tempted to say, okay, listen, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night, <laughs> you know. I was born on, a, on, a, on one day, but it wasn't yesterday. You go through all that, you'd have a hard time believing it. And so John, in narrative form, makes that declaration, and then he tells some stories. And pay attention to the narrative, because he tells some stories to draw you in. So he makes this audacious claim, and then he tells a couple of stories to cl- close out the chapter about w- using the same phrase. First is these two disciples of John the Baptist, and they, they look, and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And, and they go over to try to check out Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, uh, what do you want? And they say, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And Jesus says, come and see, come and see. Now, in it, he actually said that, that actually happened, But when you realize what's going on in the narrative, that this audacious claim has been made, and you're sitting there trying to decide whether you're going to buy in or not, in story form, he now says, come and see. And then the first chapter closes out with that wonderful story about Philip going and finding Nathaniel. Say, we found the one that that Moses wrote about, the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. And remember Nathaniel's response, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then listen to Philip's reply come and see, come and see. Now, again, those stories actually happen, but the, the writer, John, is picking those stories up and using them for his broader narrative to say, listen, I'm making this claim about Jesus, and I know it's hard to believe, but just give it a hearing, come and see. And then you start the second chapter with this amazing miracle story 
And in the context, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, here's, here's the God become a man. I know it's hard to buy into, but come and see. And now Jesus turns water into wine, which in the narrative is saying, Jesus changes everything if you'll let him. Jesus changes everything if you let him. He'll take the, he'll take the water of Judaism and legalism, and he will turn it into the wine of the gospel if you will allow him. That's what's happening in the narrative. But I want to focus just for a few moments today on some very practical lessons from this text that are based on five phrases and five insights. And we're looking at it from the context and the question behind it of saying, how do you, how do you deal with a crisis? What do you do when the wine runs out? And again, this story actually happened and it was a, we might look at it and say, my goodness, it's why the big fuss? You know, you're at a wedding and you run out of the wine, or if we were doing it in Church of Christ, we'd run out of food. Maybe we'd run out of, you know, Kool-Aid, I don't know. What's the big deal? And here's what I know. It may not have been a big deal for anybody else. It was a big deal for those people. Boy, isn't that a sweet thing about Jesus? Isn't that a sweet thing about God? A big deal to you becomes a big deal to him because he's your father and he cares about you at a very personal level. And so I love the fact that, that here's a crisis, the wine has run out, and whether it's big or little, it's big to them. And in our lives, I don't know about you, but whether, whether you know it or not, there's going to come a time when the wine runs out. It may be that you get that pathology report back, and it's not benign, it's malignancy. What do you do when the wine runs out? Maybe it's like two of our friends this week found out just a short time after their father had passed unexpectedly, now their mother has passed. What do you do when the wine runs out? What do you do whenever you find out that he's had an affair or she's had an affair or that downsizing has affected you? What do you do when the wine runs out? What do you do when you show up at your dream job on April Fool's Day 2020 to an empty campus and a COVID nightmare that we all walk through. What do you do when the wine runs out? Here's five phrases, five insights. Let's go. Phrase number one, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. Or as I tried to say it, I think the way it actually happened, they have no more wine. And the insight is lean into your relationship with Jesus. Lean into your relationship with Jesus. I love this story because this is precisely a story about relationship. This is mom pushing the envelope with her son and in, in doing something that is clear in the narrative wasn't on Jesus's agenda. But she leans into her relationship and she presses the issue. And I've done a lot of studying in the Greek and I know we've got Sunset Bible Institute and, you know, a lot of scholars out there. But I've discovered that this, this line, they have no more wine, is roughly equivalent to the expression in today's language that sometimes a wife will utter to her husband, and the expression is this, the dishes in the dishwasher are clean. Now, I can tell by that laughter, if mama says the dishes in the dishwasher are clean, and I can see by these glances that some of y'all know what that means too, right? Josh, I don't have to draw you a picture if she says that. She's saying, hey, dishes, dishwasher are clean. Get them out of there. Take those dirty dishes in the sink and put them in the dishwasher. Make yourself useful, right? 
Well, what is that? That's, that's a relationship, and you don't have to spell it out. And what's happening here is Jesus' mother is saying, hey, there's a problem here, and I know you can do something. Please do it. Here's the deal. Whenever difficult times come, we need, desperately need a relationship with Jesus. And we can build that. The time to build it is not in a crisis. The time to build it is, is right now before a crisis comes. And let me just compliment you all. I'm glad that you were at church. That's a very good thing. It's a good way to spend some time on a Sunday morning. But let, let's be real careful that we don't equate going to church with having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some time ago, Willow Creek did a study that, that said basically there is, a, there is a direct correlation, there is a, a connection between going to church and growing in your, in your faith walk. You know, you actually grow and mature spiritually, and it goes on a, a trajectory like this. And they said that trajectory and that positive growth goes on for about two to three years, and then it levels out and actually starts to decline unless you become what they call a self feeder. If you rely on just going to church for very long, you will plateau and you'll end up declining. And so leaning into your relationship with Jesus, let me encourage you to go deeper. I love the story in Mark 9 when Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He's met by his disciples, the disciples who had been given power to cast out demons, the disciples who had the ability to do something They've come up against a demon they don't know what to do with. You know the story. The, the father comes up to Jesus and says, if, if you can do something, Jesus says, if I can, anything's possible for those who believe. The man says in a spirit of real genuineness, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus casts out that demon that made the boy fall on the ground and roll into the fire, try to hurt himself. And later in a quiet time in the debrief, the disciples say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And you remember Jesus' response? Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer. Some of the other, uh, other marginal notes say, and fasting. This, time, this kind comes out only by prayer. Here's the remarkable thing. He didn't stop and pray. Whenever he cast that demon out, he didn't stop and pray. So what's going on there? What Jesus is saying is, the reason I was able to do something you're not yet able to do is because I have a relationship with the Father. And it's fueled by those times in private when often he would get up and go to lonely places and spend time in prayer to God. When difficult times come, lean into your relationship with Jesus. Phrase number two, insight number two. Do whatever he tells you. Man, I love this. I love this. Again, Jesus, she says, they have no more wine. Why do you involve me? Look, here is a mom. She lets that go in one ear, not the other, right? And she doesn't even pay attention to his, his uh, pushing back. She simply says, you do whatever he tells you. Now, let me tell you, here's the insight. Discipleship is all about following. Discipleship is all about following. Listen, you will get no better advice from anyone anytime than to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Would you say amen to that? And the trouble in today's world is that we have misunderstood discipleship. And like one, one preacher said, the modern idea of discipleship is, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere I want to go. <laughs> I'll follow you anywhere I want to go. But I'm telling you what, that may be a lot of things. It's not discipleship. Discipleship is 
taking the words and the ways of Jesus seriously and putting them into practice in our lives. It was Jesus who taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it was Jesus who modeled in the Garden of Gethsemane when every fiber of his being wanted to do something else. He said, God, let this cup pass, Mark's account. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. That's what discipleship looks like. And by the way, we, we can't improve on the words and the ways of Jesus. Just put into practice, do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. Put into practice, love one another as I have loved you. Put into practice to not just tolerate your enemies, but to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you and see what a difference this world would be. And oh, by the way, I love what Jesus said in in John 14. We love that text. If you love me, you will what? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's, that's a fascinating thing because the very next verse says, oh, and I'll, I'll ask God and he'll send the Spirit. What we want to do sometimes is say, God, send your Spirit. Give me the ability to love my enemy because I can't love my enemy. And Jesus says, love your enemy anyway. Do it anyway, and then I'll show up. You do it anyway, and then I'll show up. Discipleship is all about following. Phrase number three, insight number three, they filled them to the brim. I love this. I love this. Jesus says, take those stone water jars, fill them with water. Now, they didn't know he was about to turn water into wine. They had no idea. And can you imagine if they would just filled them part way, they'd have been kicking themselves the rest of their lives. And the insight is, go all in with God. Don't miss anything. Don't miss out on anything God has in mind for you. Don't miss what he might be doing, what he might want to do in your life. So fill it to the brim. Fill it to the brim. And I, I love this idea of, of just pursuing, giving, giving our whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength to God. Our uh, former dean of the School of Business, he's now our, our uh, visiting professor, Matt Bumstead, president of the United Supermarkets for a long time. And he told this story, and I, I really love this story. He told about how United Supermarkets are really... They're in the people business, they just happen to sell groceries. That's kind of their philosophy. We're in the people business, we just happen to sell groceries. And they drill that into their employees and and tell them, listen, the customer comes first, we're in the people business, just happen to sell groceries. So it played out one day in the bakery when a young girl got a call in the bakery and and they said, hey, I'd I'd like to buy a wedding cake. And she said, okay, she's taking down information. You need a wedding cake, when do you need it? We like it this afternoon. <laughs> we like it this afternoon. She said, "Well, you know, it's a seventy-two hour turnaround on a birth uh, on a wedding cake, a wedding cake, because they want to do it right. It's a big occasion. They don't want to rush that. And so, you know, what she could have done very easily, and what people often do is they just hide behind the policy. Sorry, can't help you. You know, we got a seventy-two hour turnaround. But she had been coached up well, and so she went to her manager and said, "I got, I got a lady on the phone and." She's asking for a wedding cake this afternoon. And so the manager came over, got on the phone, said, I understand you need a wedding cake. She said, yes. And I understand it's a rush. She said, yes. He said, could you tell me more? She said, yes, I can. I'm a nurse over here in the cancer ward right here in Lubbock. 
I'm a nurse in the cancer ward. We got a 19-year-old girl who doesn't have much time left. Her fiance, her teenage fiance, has just proposed to her, we want to have a wedding this afternoon. He said, you'll have your cake. He didn't miss out. And the challenge for us is to not miss out, to go all in with Jesus. Phrase number four, insight number four, but the servants knew. I love this. Isn't this beautiful? The first miracle that Jesus ever performed, and nobody's in on it but the servants. And in fact, when you look at the language, about a half a dozen times, the servants are either referenced specifically or they they are made reference to. And the insight is, if you want a backstage pass to the kingdom of God, the way you get there is through service. Service is the front row seat to see what God is doing in this world because we follow one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for, as a ransom for many. The shortest path to knowledge and, frankly, to Christ-like maturity is through service. Phrase number five, insight number five, and I like this. You saved the best till now. <laughs> you saved the best till now, and the, the insight is to embrace the optimism that's in this text. Again, when you step back from this, and recognize this really happened. It's a story about wine. Jesus made some really good wine, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He calls the bridegroom aside. Man, typically they bring the chief stuff out late. You've saved the best till now. That actually happened. But in the narrative, do you see how beautiful that line is? As John writes this probably 40 or 50 years after it happened, and he's got the benefit of 20-20 hindsight, and he's looking back and it's the first miracle Jesus ever did, and God is acting in this world. The Word has become flesh, pitched His tent among us, and God is doing something, and the narrator's saying about what God is doing right then. You saved the best till now. And when you think about what God was doing in redemptive history, it's so much better than Moses. It's so much better than David. It's so much better than the prophets. It's Jesus God becoming a man, laying his life down for us, taking care of our sin problem, reconciling us to God, announcing the availability of the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God can be a reality for us. That's the good news Jesus preached. Jesus didn't preach a message of the bare minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. He preached a message about how your life can be full and abundant as you participate in God's cause in this world. You've saved the best till now. Back when COVID was at full swing and all the mess was going on with all the racial tension that was happening in this country, you remember right after the George Floyd riots, they were breaking out all over the country. And I've got some dear friends in Nashville, Tennessee, that told me they were, they were wrestling with what to do. There were a bunch of church members there. They didn't know what to do, so they decided, we're just going to go have a prayer walk in downtown Nashville we're going to pray about this situation. And I don't know if you've been in downtown Nashville of late, but it's kind of like New Orleans now. Lower broad, it's just one honky-tonk after another. And even with all that had been going on, those places were full. And there was still a lot of unrest. And so these Christians are walking down there, and they're having a prayer walk. And they get outside of one of those little honky-tonks, and they've prayed. And then they break out in a cappella singing Amazing Grace. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And one of those musicians in one of those honky-tonks, all these windows open to the outside, starts picking that out on his guitar, starting to play Amazing Grace. And, and then the next honky-tonk down picked it up, and before you know it, there's a little concert on Lower Broad of, of a half a dozen honky-tonks playing Amazing Grace all together. And I share that story because what I know is with all the problems in your life, my life, this nation's collective life, Jesus Christ is the answer to all that. And God has saved the best till now. And as long as we've got Jesus in our lives, these are always, these are always the best of times. We're going to sing a song of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to this Jesus who loved you so much. And whether the wine has run out for you or the wine will someday run out, I hope you remember the lessons from these texts as together we stand and as we sing.